When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The young victim of the Wexford dog attack comes home. We speak to Alejandro Mizan and his family. Do people tell you, Alejandro, that you have been super brave? Yeah. Do you feel very brave? Do you feel like a superhero? Yeah. Government ministers hold a long cabinet meeting tonight and promise action over the next six months on several fronts, including housing and homelessness. The number of people in emergency accommodation is increasing and that remains a real worry. And later, what on earth is chat GPT? And what's all the fuss about? We hear whether the artificial intelligence tool heralds a whole new era of technology. You can join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV and you can vote in our live interactive poll. First tonight, the family of a boy attacked by a dog in Wexford have welcomed home the nine-year-old sooner than expected. Alejandro Mizan has been discharged from hospital after seven weeks of treatment for injuries he sustained during the attack before Christmas. They spoke to Kira Doherty this evening and some viewers may find some of this interview upsetting. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. How are you? Hello, little man. How are you? Good. Hi. Nice to meet you. Hi, Kira. How are you? Raul, it is lovely to be speaking to you here in your family home back in Enniscorthy, but with Alejandro beside you. How does it feel for you and your family to have Alejandro home? Um, all I can say is like a, a dream come true for all of my family and that God listened to all the prayers that we had and we're just very happy, you know, it's a, a dream come true and hopefully the nightmare that we had, it will be over soon. I know you were in hospital right across Christmas and New Year. How long were you there in total and how was that for you? We, Alejandro was in the hospital for um, eight weeks and Christmas and the New Year's we actually didn't feel anything. It was just like a normal day. We wish we had Alejandro home so we can, you know, celebrate or go somewhere with him, have a, something, you know. But we're glad that we have him, that we have him back for, uh, for his birthday. So we're just happy that he's here for his birthday. At the time when I spoke to you in the studio in Dublin, you spoke about how bereft your parents were, understandably. How are they doing now? Um, they're still in, in, in a big shock. They're still in trauma. Alejandro is in, in trauma physically and mentally, and we are just mentally because it's, it's hard to wake up and see him like this, the way he looks, and we have to do some things for him that we never did. And it's, it's just hard, um, but hopefully, like we know there's a very, very long road ahead of him and us at the same time. 
it's very, very, very hard for us to see him like this. How do you think Alejandro, because he's only nine, how do you think he has adapted and coped with what's happened? Um, as I said, he's, uh, he's a very brave boy, he's a very strong, um, he's a fighter, but at the, at the end of the day he's, uh, he's just a child, he's nine years old, turning ten. Um, it's hard for him and for us in the same time, it's hard for us and we're adults, imagine how hard it is for him. But just, we, ha we are beside him all the time and that's what matters, we are a family, so this is what it matters and it helps him go on through everything. Alejandro, welcome home. Welcome. What is the best thing about being back in your own house? Um, I'm delighted that I'm back home and being with my family. And, yeah. And did you get to see some of your friends? Yeah, I did. And what did you do with them? Um, have some fun. Um, he had two major surgeries while he was in hospital. How did they go and what is the road to recovery looking like? Um, we don't know for certain how long do we have to wait, but I know 100% that we have to wait another six months till um, he heals properly. And then we can do, there's two more surgeries to be done. I think in Ireland, the, the doctors are very good in Ireland and we we're looking forward to do a lip surgery for him and some um, scar treatment. And I don't know if it's possible to get that in Ireland, but if not, we will have an option to and maybe go over some in some other countries. And I know you had real concerns when I spoke to you back in November that he might not be able to speak again, but he can. That that yeah. Um, back then he had the tube and he had. Uh, that's something like a piece of so he would put in his neck and he can talk with he can talk with that speaking valve sorry was he had a speaking valve in his neck and he can he was talking with that and I was just very scared that he will have to talk with that but as I said God is very big and he listens all our prayers and we're just so lucky to have him alive with us and be with us here and to hear him speak again and to hear him speak yeah. You said that you were going to be by Alejandro's side through all of this, in, including the moments where you had to bring him through what happened and show him what had happened. How was that? Yeah, I, I was with him all the time. But when I wasn't there, my father was there. But maybe, let's just say I was maybe two or three days I missed the rest. I was all, all the time with him. And how did you find that experience of showing Alejandro what has happened and telling him about what had happened and what he would face? It's, it's normal because we, we were always close. So it's just something normal to me. It's, well, it's not normal because I have to tell him some very big things that I, I will say to my father or to an adult. But I, as, as he, as my brother, um, I tell him these things and I know that he will, he will make it at the end of the day. He will, he will make it and he will look good. Please God. Um, you've raised a huge amount of money through the GoFundMe page for Alejandro. I think it's over 175,000 euro. What will that money go towards? Yes, because he has a very, very long uh, road ahead of him and there is so much surgeries to be done to him, as I said before, the scarring, the treatment and lip replacement. What is your hope for Alejandro now? Um, I hope that he will uh, recover physically and mentally as soon as possible and he can return to school as soon as possible as well and get on with his normal life. We just, I can't wait to, to, for that day to come to, to, to see him that he's 
his bank in the normal life. Because the physical journey is one thing, but the mental journey is another, isn't it? Yeah, probably physically um, there is doctors that can fix this, but mentally it's hard. No, I know there is psychologists and, 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 and people that can help you through this, but it's, it's very hard. You know, he's, he's only a child, he's only nine years old, and I think it's hard. Uh, maybe with the time um, he, will, he will get better and he will be back to a normal life that he had before. Has he been meeting his friends and out playing again? Yes, yes, there was uh, all the neighbours come here, all his friends, cousins, everybody was him uh, at his house here. Um, they play, they do, you know, what kids do, you know. Yeah, they really bring him uh, cards to read, you know. Uh, they did lots of stuff and play PlayStation, all, all, all with his friends. And it was good to see him back playing again? Yeah, and, and um, I'm very uh, happy to see that all the kids come to Alejandro's house and the way they treat him, you know, it's, it's very nice. I was expecting something else, but not for the neighbours. Maybe when he will go out somewhere, please God, it will be the same as our neighbours. You have a very big birthday coming up, don't you? What age are you going to be? Uh, ten. Ten-year-old. A ten-year-old? That's this many? Yeah. And what are you going to do when you turn ten, do you think? Uh, I don't know. Maybe have a party? And are you hoping to get some presents, big presents this year? Yeah. What would you like? Um, in hoverboard. Like a hoverboard? You might see can somebody organise a hoverboard for you. And have you missed school? Um, yeah. Are you looking forward to going back to school and actually people will think you've been super, yeah. super, super brave? Yeah, that, that's why I, I couldn't go to school because I have a tube in my stomach. But when you get that is gone, do you think you might be able to go back? Yeah. yeah. Do people tell you, Alejandro, that you have been super brave? Yeah. Do you feel very brave? Do you feel like a superhero? Yeah, I do. And that was Kira Doherty talking to Alejandro and Mizan and his brother Raul um, in that wake of, of the devastating attack um, on young Alejandro and what a superhero and what a brave boy he's been. Um, I want to just talk in the wake of this and something that a working group now has been established, um, Lisa Chambers. Just to talk about our panel tonight, I'm joined uh, by Fianna Fáil Senator uh, Lisa Chambers and People Before Profit, TD Paul Murphy, and you're both very welcome along to the programme. Um, extraordinary bravery shown there by little Alejandro um, and um, incredible to hear, you know, his recovery and, and the strength that the, that the family have drawn by, by coming together and their ability to talk about this in what what must be a very difficult time. Um, but Lisa, you know, the issue of dog control, there's a working group now being established. Um, are you hopeful that we, we are likely to see changes, that we are likely to see progress in this area? I am. I mean, it, it's a challenging area to try and police, as, as people will know in their own local areas. And just to say that... Um you know, Alejandro is just a fantastic young man and credit to him and his family. And I'm sure it's been a really 
traumatic experience for all of them. Um, so it's just great to see him back and back home. And you know, credit to his brother as well. He's been fantastic advocating on his behalf. Um, so you're right, uh, Claire. There's been a working group set up between Minister Charlie McConnell's office and uh, Minister Heather Humphreys as well. Uh, that's going to meet in the coming days and report back to both ministers. They are looking at measures that can be implemented under the uh, Control of Dogs Act 1986, which governs. Um, it's 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 really to local authorities that deal with with dogs in each local authority area. So things like uh, fines, are we going to increase those, uh, increasing the number of dog wardens, um, and obviously a public awareness campaign as well, because ultimately it's the responsibility of owners mm -hmm. to, to control their dogs um, and to make sure that they behave properly. Um, so there is, it's, it's a difficult area to police because what's happened here to four where there has been issues, say for example, like dog fouling or public disorder, unless you catch somebody in the act, um, it hasn't really been followed up properly. So there does need to be, I think, greater enforcement of existing laws that are already yeah. there uh, and more resources sure. with local authorities in terms of wardens yeah. because there aren't enough of them. And many people would say, Paul Murphy, you know, this legislation or even establishing a working group to discuss potential legislation, it's a really long time coming. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge issue about resourcing. Um, we have about 50 full-time dog wardens in the state, about 25 part-time dog wardens, about one dog warden for every, every 4,000 uh, dogs. Um, so that's an issue. There's an issue about puppy farms. Um, Ireland is the, the puppy farm capital of Europe. The conditions in some of those puppy farms, although we've had legislation, it's not really being enforced. Um, quite poor, lack of socialising, that is leading to, to problems. And then the fundamental issue, I think, is really an issue of education. You know, like any dog, if it doesn't have a responsible owner, if it doesn't have the dog under control, can represent some form of, of danger. Mm -hmm. So we need to have like a good ownership programme, which means that from the moment that people become owners of dogs, they have training available to them, they have regular checks to see are there behavioural issues presenting here, in which case then mandatory courses to teach them how to deal with those to make sure that we have owners behaving responsibly, which will then result in, okay. in dogs behaving well. Okay. Um, to move on to other news of the day today and in the context of the ongoing health crisis, the INMO has said that industrial action will go ahead if the HSE cannot guarantee the safety of its members. And this week they're consulting with their members, with nurses right across the country, about possible strike action. And we want to know, would you support strike action by nurses over the hospital overcrowding crisis. So now to our poll tonight, would you support strike action by nurses over uh, the hospital crowding crisis? And you can vote online on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash vote or follow the QR code on our screen. We will bring you the results of that poll because um, we want to talk in general now about this cabinet briefing um, that was held with a view to looking ahead to the priorities of the year and what are going to be done around the big issues such as health and such as housing. Uh, in a meeting in Farmley House earlier this evening, Cabinet met for the first time and they were discussing their plans, as I say, for the first half of this year. And at the press conference following that meeting, the Taoiseach said that no decision has been made by the government uh, whether or not they'll extend the eviction ban when it expires at the end of March. It comes as a record number of homeless people were recorded in November. And official figures showed that 11,542 people needed emergency accommodation, including... 3,494 children. 
the numbers of people in emergency accommodation is increasing and that remains a real worry. Um, it is important to say that um, uh, when people hear the term uh, over, over 11,000 people being homeless, um, some people believe that means living on the streets or living in tents. That's not the case. These are all people who are being provided with emergency accommodation uh, by the state. Um, it's just that they don't have a secure tenancy and I think it's important to bear that in mind. Um, let's get reaction to what the Taoiseach had to say there. Paul Murphy, what do you make of that comment when he was asked about those record homeless figures we're seeing? Well, I think any idea that the government will not extend what is only a partial eviction ban, it isn't even a full eviction ban, it's people getting eviction notices now, um, but would demonstrate just a level of heartlessness and a level of disconnectedness from the situation that people are facing. Um, if they lift the eviction ban, as is currently planned early, in, in a couple of months' time, well, then there will be a flood of more evictions. So we, we need to keep and, and enforce a proper eviction ban to stop the entry of people into homelessness and then use this slight breathing space that you get from that to actually deal yeah. with the fundamental issues. Yeah, I want to ask about that because this was the breathing space, this was the time that all this government action was going to happen. All, you know, the efforts were going to be put into pulling down those homeless figures so that when this ban was lifted come March, mm -hmm. there would be solutions. The problem would have eased slightly. Uh, Lisa Chambers, do you believe that we are likely to see an easing in time for March, when they, the government clearly hasn't made a decision on whether or not it's going to do it, but they won't say, yeah, look, we will, we will hang on to that ban being in place for as long as we need to. I think what the government will, will look at is that, obviously it's in place until March, that mirrors what they do in France. Um, it's to give people that certainty, particularly in the more difficult months in terms of, um, you know, trying to find a, a new property, but... It's also we, time, it's also supposed to give the government time to solve problems. Do you think, do you believe that they will do that within that time? It, look, it's a challenging space. There's no point in saying otherwise. Um, you know, we, we will meet our housing uh, delivery targets this year. Um, we met them last year, but the challenge now we face is that we have record numbers of people coming in seeking international protection. We've got Ukrainian refugees as well need, that need accommodation. That has put extra pressure on the system. Um, and also we know from talking to... And we didn't to, know all that. Well, it, it, to be fair, I think the numbers are extraordinary um, and it is unprecedented. So it has been a huge challenge and it has exasperated the problem. That's just the facts of it. Uh, looking at the, the eviction ban that's currently in place, and I think it's been very good that it has been in place, what they will want to bear in mind, I believe, and the decision hasn't been taken yet, is that will landlords mm -hmm. then decide to sell and, and then those properties get taken out of the system. So that's the balance that's been struck at the minute because we know landlords are leaving the market as well and that's exasperating the problem. So I would be in favour of it being extended, but I also don't think it's not a permanent solution. We need more, more houses built ultimately, so it's not going to fix so the problem you think long ultimately, term. Do you believe sticking... ultimately the government are going to come to that conclusion that that eviction ban needs to be extended? I can't say that. I think it's probably more likely than not, but I think ultimately it's worth acknowledging it's a sticking plaster. It's not going to be a long-term solution. Just to say, I think th this idea... So there's a dangerous and false idea that the housing crisis is worse because we have people coming here from Ukraine or fleeing wars elsewhere. There's no basis in truth to that because these people are not getting access to housing. We see that they're in tents, they're in poor emergency accommodation across the country. That is not 
the problem. And the government is playing a very dangerous game if they want to go down that road and give sucker to the kind of far-right and racist arguments that are using that, because it's simply not true. That is not... We had a housing crisis before any refugees, before the war in Ukraine, mm. before any of that was happening. That's not why we have the crisis now. And right now, there's an issue whereby we have 50,000 properties that have been vacant for six years or more. The government should be using the time in with the eviction ban to say, use it, it or lose it. Do you, do, 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 do you agree with Paul that you're in danger of actually pitting one emergency against another? No, I think it's just laying out the facts of what the government are dealing with. I mean, it's not trying to to, to join the two together or pit one against the other. I think it's the wrong. But is that not take. what you're doing when but I'm asking the question? You know about you know the fact that an eviction ban in place, the fact that we've record numbers of homelessness, it's giving time to solve the problem. And then you're saying to me, well, also you know we obviously have this uh, you know refugee situation in the country. Well, I think it's just a fact that it's an additional challenge that has been quite significant. Take into account as well that during the pandemic, which was only two years ago when this happened at the start where we had to shut down construction for a period and we're still building more houses than we did before this government took office. So it's just worth acknowledging there is a lot of good work being done. I'm not suggesting there isn't, isn't a challenge there. In terms of the vacant properties that Paul has spoken about, we have a new scheme in place, the Creekona scheme, that directly looks to target those properties, that gives new homeowners a grant to do up vacant properties. So there is a scheme already up and running and there's been a huge uptake in that right across the country. Okay. I want to get back to our poll tonight, um, our nightly interactive poll that was looking at whether you would support strike action by nurses over the hospital overcrowding crisis. And the result of that poll was 82% of you voting tonight said, yes, we would support nurses taking strike action. 18% saying no. Now, often when you hear of strike action by frontline services, there's a large proportion of the population saying, you know, no, they can't do this. This is going to cause havoc in our hospitals. This is going to put pressure on our services. Viewers tonight are saying, you know what? Yeah, nurses need to strike. Look, all I will say is I think there's huge support and solidarity with nurses and I think the situations that they're working in is just not acceptable and, and we all acknowledge that. But I just hope, just for the sake of patients mm. and the health service, that we can avoid that. And that is a job that the Minister for Health and all of government will Look, have to deal with. Look, hasn't that ship sailed? Exactly. No, Paul, I mean, yeah, uh, you we, know... We deal with this hospital crisis. Truth, with, with this crisis and this situation, and we know that the HSE were saying this week, look, we've seen trolley numbers slightly come down in recent days. Yeah. Why is that happening? because nurses are working overtime and medical staff are working overtime. And, and we've had promises winter after winter after winter from this and previous governments to say, oh, no, we won't have this again. But it's presented like a, just a natural catastrophe that just happens every uh, winter. It doesn't have to be that way. Fundamentally, it's a political choice not to have enough hospital beds in the system. We have just over half of the European average of beds per thousand people. That's the fundamental issue. And that's a resourcing issue. And, you know, the, people have been asking nicely and the government says every year we're going to do, deal with this. And I think I'm not surprised by that poll at all. I think if the nurses took strike action, that will galvanise enormous public mm -hmm. support. You would see that on the streets and people would just say, enough. We need proper investment in our public hosp yeah. ho hospitals. Stop siphoning off money and giving tax breaks to private hospitals. Let's integrate the private into the public system. Let's build a proper well, national yeah. health And do you know what the Thornish they said tonight, and uh, I'd like to see your take on it, uh, Micheál Martin saying that governance and management issues within the HSE need to be examined in light of the record levels of overcrowding. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's one, one aspect of it. And when, when Paul speaks about additional beds being needed, you can't just put a bed into a ward. You need a whole staffing to go with that. We have, well, I think we, no we one have assumes of, that you literally put a bed but, but, in. But, but, but it is, but just, just, just to, to finish the point, 
when yeah. Paul said it was a resourcing issue, a lot of posts have been sanctioned in different aspects of our health service. We're just struggling to recruit why? people because it's a difficult space to recruit. It's an international market. So when it's not as simple as just putting beds into a hospital. You need to get the staff around it and we are struggling to recruit the staff needed. That's just an acknowledgement of the situation that we're in. I'm not suggesting for a second that it's acceptable that nurses are working in those conditions. I don't believe that at do all. Do you believe this potentially? Because we do talk about it year after year. You can nearly pl place it in your diary that in the first week in January every year, we are going to be talking about a trolley uh -huh. crisis. Do you believe this is potentially, this year, a watershed moment? I think that we know what we need to do in terms of increasing staff numbers, increasing bed capacity. We know there are the things we need to do and that, that is a top priority You've known for the for Minister. Year. You've known that for years. To be fair, there has been increases in bed capacity in, in the last year and there's been huge investment in health. We have a massive health budget, mm. but we are struggling on an international market to recruit the consultants and staff we need. That's not, that's not just an Irish problem. There's a, a similar crisis in the UK as well and other European countries. Mm. We are dealing with coronavirus, we're dealing with RSV. Yeah. So it is a perfect storm to use... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Minister's own words. Um, but I, I do believe it's solvable and it's not just about putting beds into wards. There's a whole other suite of measures needed. But there's a reason that staff are leaving and they, they'll tell you themselves. They're leaving because of the housing crisis. They're dealing because of leaving because of the health crisis yeah. and the conditions of massive pressure. They're, the answer to the solution is get them to work, get, answer to the crisis, get them to work week, weekends. And they're leaving because of terms and conditions. Well, so that, that's ways of dealing with those extra things. Hours and, and, and credit to them, extra staff have come in and okay. done overtime and that's been really welcome and it's been a huge help. Okay.
OK, well, we'll have to see how it plays out, um, you know, from a nursing representative point of view, what decision they make around whether or not they ballot staff um, this week and how those discussions go. Uh, for now, we will leave that conversation there. But Lisa and Paul are staying with me because coming up, uh, the government promised to tackle gender-based violence. Welcome back. Justice Minister Simon Harris has said that he expects to bring forward four significant pieces of legislation before the summer in an attempt to create what he calls a zero-tolerance strategy for gender-based violence. Well, Senator Lisa Chambers and Deputy Paul Murphy are still with me, and I'm also joined by Women's Aid CEO Sarah Benson. Um, you're very welcome along to the programme, Sarah. And I, look, I just want to... Um, talk about this legislation because it is promising an awful lot, Lisa, in the way of updating what is in place. New laws to crack down on domestic violence, mm -hmm. to offer more support to victims, uh, to strengthen, strengthen legislation. Uh, you know, in terms of top lines, what big changes are we going to see? Yeah, so we're going to see an increase in, the, in the, the sentence for assault causing harm from five up to ten years, which is the most common charge which is usually brought in a domestic violence case. Uh, we'll also see a new criminal justice bill which will bring in standalone offences for non-fatal strangulation and also stalking legislation, which came from my own bill, which I published a year ago, uh, to criminalise stalking, so that's been incorporated as well. Um, and there'll also be new, new legislation in relation to family law as well to try and make that a smoother process. So there's a lot happening um, that's been in training. There's definitely... I think, you know, obviously we're on the eve of, of the passing of the, the, the murder of Ashley Murphy, which is the one-year anniversary tomorrow. And that was, I think, a catalyst for a lot mm -hmm. of change. What I witnessed myself, having been dealing with the Justice Department prior to that, where they were not in favour of my stalking legislation, there was a real change in terms of attitude and urgency in dealing with these issues in terms of violence against women. So the government then, um, in the middle of last year, my own party, Fianna Fáil, published a policy document on this issue. Mm. And then the government published its own zero tolerance strategy uh, in June of last year as well. And that deals with not just the criminal justice system, because if I can say it, I'm sure Sarah would agree, when we get to that point, it's too late. We need to talk about prevention. So there's a whole suite of measures in terms of um, education. So the junior cycle, we'll see an updated junior cycle um, education piece okay. this September. And we, will, we will get to that because yeah. we'll talk about education because as we will discover, I think, when, when talking through this, education, I think, is key around Huge. all of this. Um, I'd just like to get some reaction um, from Emma Murphy now, who's on the line and joining us. Um, and Emma... You're a survivor of domestic abuse and you came to the attention of the public after one such incident in 2015 when uh, you post a video of, of yourself online telling the world about the reality of what you were experiencing. Now, but you raise awareness now for women and for children who can't speak for themselves. Um, and you're a strong advocate and activist for um, the community, if you like. So tell us what you think those laws will do. Will they go far enough? Um, it's very welcome to all the, the new legislations. I think it's been a long time coming and it's absolutely what this country needs to protect women. We need to have a justice system where women feel safe and protected. And I don't think women have felt that way, but I think with the new bill, it will absolutely help. It will give women the hope and the courage and the strength to actually come forward and come forward with their perpetrators, knowing that they could potentially go down or go to prison for 10 years now. 
Yeah, tell us about field. that in terms of, because sentencing is a big part in terms of victims coming forward and actually going through the court process as well. I mean, in your personal experience, how did you find that legal process? And do you think, you know, the sentencing law as it stands, the idea that they would increase um, maximum sentences and say double the likes of, of, of maximum assault sentences from five to 10 years, all of that will be welcomed. They need to go further, do you believe in that area? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, 10 years, it, it sounds it sounds well, it sounds good. But what about the other forms of abuse? What about financial abuse, gaslighting, all the other forms of abuse that don't require a woman to look like she's been beat up physically? You know, I think we need to look at those areas too because that's happening every single day, which is just as bad as physical abuse and assault. Yeah, uh, I would like to bring Sarah Benson in here. And Sarah... You know, to, to, to talk about what Emma's talking about there, a lot of it, it it's hidden. And it is, it is, it is the, the mental abuse as well as the physical abuse. Um, and it is a raft of new laws, a lot of new legislation going through. Still a lot of work to be done on it too, I would say. Um, do you believe that all those areas are targeted? Well, I think, firstly, uh, we in Women's Aid, and I know our colleagues in the sector who are on the front line 24-7, um, we welcome all of these new developments. We should also note that, you know, there is a Domestic Violence Act has been in place. We do, and I think Emma's point is absolutely crucial, coercive control, the psychological abuse, the emotional abuse, that pattern of behaviour is something that has been criminalised in the form of coercive control. And with any new legislation, um, passing the law is only the very first step. The next is the implementation of the law. It's the public awareness of it mm -hmm. and getting it out there and being also um, a, a contributor to what we need to get out there in terms of the community message, which destigmatizes what is often still something that is, uh, you know, hidden, is secret, where we know that survivors, uh, you know, in a large number of cases, they won't necessarily reach our services. They won't necessarily disclose to anybody. So, it, you know, it all feeds into what has to be a whole community response. So it's really welcome, yeah. but, you know, um, that, that's also a component yeah. of it. Uh, speaking about the community response, Paul, uh, I'm struck by, like, we can't have this conversation about domestic violence and talk about the victims all the time and mm -hmm. talk about the survivors all the time without talking about the perpetrators traitors mm -hmm. here. And we do know, um, here are the stats, that 98% of violence is caused by men, mm -hmm. whether that is towards women or men, but it's yeah. caused by men. Yeah. And we talk about education and all of that in the community. How um, critical is that now? And how far do we have to go in that area? Yeah, I think it's crucial. I mean, I, I, we live in a deeply sexist society still. Despite all the advances that we've seen in, in this country, sexism is still the prevalent hegemonic culture mm. and you know men uh, experience that uh, internalize it and then act out on it in all mm. sorts of ways in a in a spectrum of of behavior um, and i think so like education is a very important part of tackling that there's like broader societal issues but i think i do think starting at school and um, discussion around relationships around sexuality ensuring that every child from an early age, at age-appropriate way, all the way through their education, are experiencing consent-based, objective relationships and sex education. And it's now five years since our objective sex education passed second stage in the doll. 
It's still not implemented. They're working on a curriculum, which I think is going to be quite a good curriculum. Okay. But the problem is, as it currently stands, any school can say, we're not actually going to teach that because of our religious ethos. And so again, the, the church standing in the way of doing what we need to do in terms of really dismantling the sexist structures in our society. Uh, let's talk to someone who's trying to make a change at local level on this, because I'm joined now on Skype by Danielle McKenna from the Rialto Youth Project. Ja Danielle, you're very welcome along to the programme. Um, you, you do a lot of work with boys and young men. What are you specifically seeing in terms of problems or challenges that need to be addressed? Yeah, thanks very much. Um, yeah, I suppose we have been doing a project called What Does He Need? since 2018 with partners Fiona Whelan and Broken Talkers. And we're having this discussion now, but this project beginning in 2018 actually emerged from another project that we were doing, which was in relation to young women. And we had collected stories from young women about the lives that they lived and how they were growing up. And for many of those young women, violence in their lives was a serious issue or the threat of violence. Mm. And not only at an individual level, but also as a state level within the patriarchal system. And so what we have needed to do is that we needed to make a response to that. And so we created a project called What Does He Need? And the aim is to look at how our boys young men and men shaped by the world that they live in and then in turn shape the world they live. A little bit like what you were saying a minute ago, Paul, around that internalizing thing and then the conditioning that men give to young boys, particularly around particular areas of masculinity and then young men grow up in that way. Yeah. I, I, so, can I ask you, Danielle, about that? Because that is actually, you know, it's hit the headlines. It's come to prominence recently um, because of the influence of a man called uh, Andrew Tate, who calls himself mm -hmm. the king of toxic masculinity, who has a large social media following among young men. Yeah. And incidentally, many people will know that he was arrested as part of an investigation into alleged human trafficking, um, mm -hmm. rape and organised crime. Um, and to give you an example, the people may be aware of around his misogynistic, his views that he's put forward, Things like um, women belong to men, rape mm -hmm. victims are partly responsible for their attacks, and he dates young women as young as 18 and 19 because he can make an imprint on them. How popular mm -hmm. is he among young Irish men? Um, he's extremely popular, and not just among young men, but also among men, and it's worldwide as well, because platforms like social media give men like Andrew Tate the access to millions of followers and millions of ways to connect with young men. And some people this week have said things like, oh, I think people shrug it off and they don't take it very serious. But if you are hearing the messages that men like him produce back into society and prey on the most vulnerable within society, then the impact is there, the conditioning is there, and the influencing continues to build that co construct of masculinity that we are now facing in the world today. Yeah. And it's not just him, there's many other men like that giving the same messages. Yeah, Sarah, just on that, talking about it's one thing following this messaging, but how much, how, how much evidence, I suppose, have you seen in your line of work of this sort of conditioning actually impacting on women's safety and actually resulting in women being assaulted, being victims of coercive control. Yeah, I mean, just to Danielle's point, Andrew Tate is not a single, you know, isolated incident. What he is is kind of like 
that toxic masculinity or whatever you want to call it on, on absolute steroids, what, what we find is that we are born into a, a society and, you know, girls and boys, men and women, we're all socialised by that society. So that's kind of the most acute situation. But what we also know, and, and, and it was already noted, you know, tomorrow will be the anniversary of the killing of Ashling Murphy. But, but since Ashling Murphy has died, 11 more women have died through violence in this country. And since 1996, that's 254 women have died through violence. Now, that's the very, you know, uh, hard edge. But... You know, this doesn't start with an inevitability of, you know, a young boy who's, you know, born into the world becoming violent. It is through socialisation and this is where, in certain ways, there's algorithms, there's things like that that can be brought to bear, but there's also just the curriculum. There's ways that we can create yes. a different, more positive message. Yeah, Emma, to bring you um, back in, if, if you're still with us, uh, how important do you think this, you know, consent education is, I mean, many people look who've been through the education system will struggle to think um, of anything they have learnt in this regard, any messaging they've taken away, um, you know, any training for teachers or anything that they've learnt during their school days around this. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something I'm extremely passionate about is, is training, it's education, it's, it's abuse is learned behaviour, you know, and it's given young kids the tools to go out there into the big bad world. They're going to be surrounded by many different personalities, many different characters. And it's important for kids from a very, very young age to be educated about these things, boundaries, consent, you know, to say you went to say yes, when to say no. It's extremely important because if they don't know that, they're going to look at people like Andrew Tate and they're going to act in that way. And it's very, very scary. Uh, very scary as a mother, as a woman, and just as an individual. Mm. Uh, Lisa, I want to talk to you about that because, you know, I think Paul brought it up there about the fact that the, you know, SPHE programme, as it's known, is, is so, like, vastly out of date mm. and hasn't been updated. And again, it depends on the school you're in, whether or not you receive that education that is so critical, we're hearing, yeah. to, to stopping and to tackling domestic violence and violence against women at, at the root yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that it is, it is being updated in terms of consent and respect and dignity and how to treat fellow human beings, men or women. Um, we will see an updated junior cycle curriculum this September coming. Um, will all schools have to implement it? There will always be, I think, a challenge in that parents ultimately are the primary educators. Sorry, so, is, this, is this parents who make the call and not individual schools with their own ethos you and may whether have a school or not they want to... That, to that, provide this. That will be a challenge in some schools. There's no point in saying otherwise. Yeah. But it's important that the curriculum, most schools will implement this curriculum. But that's not really good cycle, enough, is it? But most just schools. To, to inform people about the, the timeline, we've got junior cycle this September, senior cycle the following September in 2024, okay. and then hopefully a year later we'll have primary schools. So every element of our education system is being overhauled in response to this. But we know from previous experience there will be challenges in some schools. Yeah. We would just hope that we can educate teachers and parents about the importance of doing this for their children's safety and well-being into adulthood and try and bring people with us as opposed to, um, you know, making it any more difficult. Paul, than something that's fraught with challenges. I mean, the, the all-party committee uh, on education agreed that we need to amend the Education Act to remove this opt-out, which exists. That means that a school can currently say, you know, we're not going to do the officially sanctioned curriculum on sex education because of our religious ethos. Instead, we're going to get this Catholic agency in to do it. We, we don't allow schools to decide whether they teach maths or not, whether they teach geography or not, the curriculum that they teach. This is basic. Every young person, regardless of what school they're going to, has a right 
to get consent, progressive, LGBTQ plus positive education, to affirm them as a person, to try to, for the men, give them a different model, uh, you know, without this hyper-masculinity, this idea of dominance and so on. And um, this, is, this is vital that we do this. We need to change the Education Act. Sarah, briefly on that, yeah. as a priority. Yeah, I think now is the time the, the, we have the National Domestic Sexual and Gender-Based Violence Strategy. It's supposed to be a whole-of-government strategy. That means that every department that has a role to play has to show how they are going to uh, implement that. We have things like the anti-bullying strategy for schools, which now names sexist bullying and sexual harassment. All these things need to be connected up because that's what it's going to take. You can't have opt-in and opt-out, but you also, I've learned, need resources for the teachers themselves to create that culture in a school. Okay, well, just to let you know you can contact helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash um, helplines around this discussion um, if you want to talk to someone or need any help. And um, We'll leave it there for now. My thanks to Emma and to Danielle and to Lisa and Paul and Sarah who joined us on the panel tonight. Lots more coming up after this break, including the rise of the artificial intelligence chatbots. Are they coming for our jobs? Stay with us. Welcome back. Now, a new artificial intelligence tool named ChatGPT is taking the world by storm, with some saying it could change the world as we know it. Well, here to explain is independent.ie tech editor Adrian Weckler and Professor Alan Smeaton from DCU's Data Analytics Insight Centre also joins us on the show tonight. Uh, ChatGPT, it's hard to get <laughs> your mouth around it, but explain to us, Adrian, in brief, how this works. So it is what they call a large language model trained artificial intelligence. In layman's English, what that means is it's scouring the internet for billions of phrases. And if you put in a specific query, it could be an instruction to write a song or a play. It could be for a student essay. It could be to write computer code to fix a problem. It does a better job by an order of magnitude than any other artificial intelligence uh, that's been publicly available up to now. It's actually taking, uh, it sounds to me like Google on steroids and taking the work out of even the search, like you can put the search into the search bar, but then you have to trawl through yourself. It does all that work for you. Is that, is that what's happening here? It does all that work for you and more. I mean, you said it's Google on steroids. Google is completely freaked out about this. Google is, as we speak, uh, to redeploying hundreds of people within the company to try to redouble its own efforts on artificial intelligence because this is the best form of Google we've ever seen. Yeah, you know, just as, as a trial, we asked Chat GPT uh, a list of topics, potential topics for an Irish current affairs TV show. And this is some of the examples of what it suggested. Within moments, it came up with this list. The housing crisis in Ireland, including rising rents and homelessness, the rights of immigrants and asylum seekers in Ireland, the Irish economy and its recovery from the 2008 financial crisis, climate change and reducing carbon emissions and the Irish political landscape. 
So it's got our showdown. Like, do we even need to be here? That's what I'm wondering, Adrian. Like, is this a game changer? Like, does it have the ability, um, and I don't want to speak badly of producers or even myself, but to, yeah. to take our jobs? So this is the same question that we always have with artificial intelligence. Is this doom for white-collar professions in particular? And the answer is partly yes, because, you know, can, for example, this system take three or four tweets and create it and create a perfectly decent article that could appear in the New York Times, the Irish Times, the Irish Independent, any other newspaper. Yes, it can. Um, so does that mean that we are going to have to be better at our jobs and more authentic? Yes, it does. OK, let's bring Professor Alan Smeaton in here. Um, Alan, you are a founding director of the Insight Centre for Data Analytics in DCU. It's your speciality, but you're also a college professor. So are you worried, because that's the first thing I would have thought of, uh, you would simply not have to do any work um, and you could produce, you know, a 1,000 word uh, essay, not yourself, but that's what could happen. And it can never be tested for plagiarism because it's not actually plagiarised. A robot has written it for you. So am I worried? Yes and no. Um, yes, because it presents an immediate opportunity, but it's not just an opportunity um, uh, or, or it's not a, a, just a, a challenge and a threat. It's also a great opportunity because this is a tool and a technique which is going to be used in white-collar professions right across the board for many years to come. What's, what's happened is, is that the company who's released this, OpenAI, have made it publicly available. And as a result of that, it's generated a huge amount of interest. But it has a lot of flaws. One of the flaws is that the text that it has built its language model on is all pre-2001. So immediately some of the things that it will provide as answers is based on text fragments prior to the end of, of the year 2020. This, the second thing and um, flaw with it is that there isn't any intelligence really in there. What happens is, is that it takes sequences of words and it is able to predict what are the likely downstream or subsequent sequences of words but there's no concept of logic or deduction or truth or anything like that in the sequences of words that it generates. And as a result, it makes mistakes. And we call these mistakes hallucinations. And they creep into many of the things that, that, um, that, that are generated as output for it. And so a third thing that I was Briefly on it, Alan, is, is, do you think it's a game changer? Like, do, do, you, do you believe that this, this could change so many things and potentially uh, replace humans in their jobs? I think it is a game changer. I think we have the constant drip feed of the development and enhancement of artificial intelligence. And the game changer fact comes about because it has been made public. We've been using GPT models for about three or four years for smaller and simpler tasks. And what OpenAI have done is they've brought it right out into the spotlight. Okay. And they can okay. afford to do this because nobody's heard of OpenAI. Right. Google can't afford to do this. The others can't afford to do okay. it. But what, what makes it spotlight is the, the company behind who's doing it. There we'll have to leave it. Um, I'm not being replaced just yet. Or either is Adrian. Thanks to you, Alan. My thanks to all our guests tonight. From all the late team here, good night and take care.